What do casinos, design, and data science have to do with each other? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the podcast with the Dean of Big Data and author Bill Schmarzo. Bill has yet another book out, but also took us deep into how he leverages design thinking to unlock outsized business and economic value with data science. Not through more or better technology, but through the creative process of understanding the humans in the loop, the problem space, and using divergent thinking to uncover unexplored solutions. But first, mark your calendars. My public seminar, Designing Human-Centered Data Products, is opening again soon for registration. First to people on my early bird list, and then to the public. Using design and design thinking, my seminar will give you or your team both the strategies and the step-by-step -step tactics that anybody can take to begin producing more valuable, data-driven machine learning, AI, and analytics solutions that your customers will actually use. This isn't a data viz workshop or a storytelling seminar. This is about changing how your team approaches problem solving with software that leverages analytics and data science so that you're learning faster what works and doesn't, you're de-risking your technology investments, you're generating outcomes instead of outputs, and overall you're just creating more human-centered solutions that people will actually use. However, for those of you who were straight-A students in school, there are no tests, assignments, or grades here. This is about learning by doing in real time against your current products and projects, so be ready to apply the curriculum to your situation. If you get stuck applying these skills to your situation, we'll be on live video calls together twice a week so you can ask me questions, get diverse advice from the rest of the group, and in general, learn from the rest of the participants' own experiences. To get on the early access list, visit designingforanalytics.com slash the seminar. And remember, space is limited and the public version of this seminar only runs twice a year. And now let's roll out the pod with Bill Schmarzo. You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill, and today, Bill Mar uh, Schmarzo, sorry, we were just talking about your name, and it was like, it could be an adjective, it could be a verb, <laughs> and it's a noun, too. <laughs> Bill Schmarzo, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data with me. How are you? Yeah, Schmarzo as a verb. What would that mean if you schmarzoed something? Would that be... That'd be a great success or a horrible failure. It kind of falls into that Yiddish vibe immediately. I don't know. Like, excellent. No, no, no. It's it's uh, it's great to have you on here, and I've had you on my list for some time. Part of the reason I had you on here is I think when I decided to focus my work and and trying to you know bring design into the world of of data products and helping teams get better outcomes from their work with design. You were one of the few people where I even saw that word anywhere relevantly close to your job title, your work description, the way you think about things. And I'm like, okay, I got to get him on the show at some point to see why. Like, so maybe we can just start there. I think design's really hand wavy for a lot of people. It's this kind of like fluffy extra stuff. If you have some extra money, maybe you throw some of that little magic dust in at the end. 
it's not a normal way that especially non-digital native companies tend to operate. I, I think it's changing slowly. I would say it's pretty normal now for most tech companies. Like when, when I consult that design and user experience is an early hire, you know, with, with your technology people as well. But talk to me about why does design matter at all in data science and analytics? Like you've had some experiences with this and I'm, I, I want you to tell us about it, but help someone who hasn't really bought into this or kind of hears it as this, you know, creative-y, hand-wavy thing. Like why do we need that? Well, Brian, that's a, it's a loaded question. And <laughs> the good news is there's actually not a simple answer to this. There's, I think it's actually a complex answer because it all starts by what you mean by design. Now, there's certainly a UI aspect of design to build products that are more conducive for the user to interact with, more natural, more intuitive. And product companies, for the most part, the last you know, 10, 15 years have really embrace design as from a UI perspective. But I also think about design from an empowerment perspective. So when I think about design and particular things like design thinking techniques, I'm thinking about how do I empower the wide variety of stakeholders that I need to service with my data science to identifying and uncovering those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. And so to me, at the very beginning of the design process, really about empowering everybody to have ideas. All ideas are worthy of consideration, which, by the way, doesn't mean all ideas are good, right? And it's about having that ability to diverge in your broad thinking in order to converge. So to me, it's an empowerment process where everybody has a chance to have a voice because you never know who might have the best idea. The second part about design that I think is very critical is that good design, whether it be customer journey maps or personas or, or service design templates, forces you to speak the language of your customer. Way too many product companies and way too many service companies are internally out-focused. That is, they think about their products and their services first, and then how does the customer fit into what I have to offer? Wrong. Wrong. You need to understand what your customer is trying to accomplish. That I love a customer journey map. I think a customer journey map is an illuminating process to understand what the customer is trying to accomplish. And then being able to figure out how do my products and services help support that journey map. So it's a very much designed as a pivot in how people think. That is, you, you stop thinking internally out and you start focusing externally back in. And the reason why this is so important is because the only real source of value creation is around the customer. Customer's the only person with ink in their pen, right? They're the only one who are buying things, right? Even if you think about yours in a B2B market, well, you're probably B2B to C at some point. And so you need to be able to speak the language of the customer and walk in their shoes in order to be able to identify, validate, verify, and prioritize the sources of customer value creation. So you're preaching to the choir here <laughs> on this, but tell me for someone who hasn't experienced this, can you give me a specific example where, or, or maybe you've seen a team where there was like a before after. So in the old way, they were doing things this way in this other way, when we tried doing this project or this product or whatever the thing was that they were making, we went through some of this process, what light bulbs went on? Was there a particular moment where things clicked for you either personally or just seeing a team 
go through this? Like, help make it concrete. Okay. I'm gonna, this is a long story. I apologize up front, but it's an illuminating story to me. It's around what's something we call an envisioning workshop. That is, before we ever do our data science work, before we really start putting science to the data, we bring in all the key business stakeholders and we run an envisioning workshop to identify the variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. And of course, the key phrase there is the word might. Because if you, as an organization, don't have enough might moments, you'll never any, have any breakthrough moments. And so we go through this process. And we're doing a project for a casino, a large casino. And they're trying to figure out how to optimize the comps they give. Most casinos have a 20% rule that if you lose like $1,000, they're going to give you $200 back in comps because they don't want you not to come back, right? So generally what casinos typically did is they gave everybody 20% of what you lost. And that was a total waste because some people... You were wasting your money. They were never going to come back anyway. Some people maybe needed more. Some people needed less. And so they wanted to create a very focused calculation on not only understanding what the customer's lifetime value was, but they wanted to create a prediction of what that lifetime value could be. So we're running this vision workshop. We're trying to brainstorm these variables and metrics. And there's this woman in the back. I don't remember her name. I'm going to call her, I'm going to call her Mary. Right? Mary's in the back. And Mary in the casino, her team sits behind. She's the cashier. She sits behind the bars, right? And they're the ones extending credit to different players. And she shares, so she's, I, so we had interviewed her and I knew she had some good insights. So I said, hey, Mary, tell us what information and metrics you might know of or some data you might know of that might really help us figure out who are our most highest potential customers. And she says, well, every night, the 30 casinos down in Southern California, they fax each other what everybody, all the players who got a line of credit. And the reason why they do this, the reason why they fax this is they don't want somebody bouncing from casino to casino, running up a line of credit, and then bolting down to Mexico. You know, it makes total sense. So every night, they fax all this information. Right? And she says this, and there's a guy in the front of the room. Let me call him Buddy. Right? He runs the slots. And in these casinos, the guy who runs or gal who runs slots, they're the king of the casino. And I remember Buddy hears this, and he pivots, and he looks, and he goes, wait, Mary, you're telling me that every night, we tell every other casino in our area who our biggest players are from a line of credit perspective. And she goes, yes. And he goes, and he says, every other casino is telling us who their biggest vendors are from a line of credit perspective. And she said, yes. And then she goes, well, it's in a PDF. So, you no, know, you can't get to it. And of course, our data science team is all drooling. PD, right, right. PDF. <laughs> let me at that. And it was at that moment that Buddy realized that, oh my gosh, this is a very valuable piece of information, especially in combination with all the other data brought together. So what happened in that moment, you could literally, in this room of 25 casino executives, the light bulb went off all at once. So they realized, oh my gosh, we're all sitting on these little pieces of data that individually may not sound important. But when you bring them all together, it gives you invaluable insights into who your most important customers might be. So that was one of those moments when that happened. You could literally see the whole room look at each other and go, oh, my gosh, I didn't know we had that. And then all of a sudden they started talking, well, what other data do we have? What else do we know about our players and such? So it was, anyway, long story. Do you know how that, how that turned oh, out yeah. or what they ended oh, up? yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't go into the details, but let me tell you, the payback, the ROI on that project was measured in weeks, not years. Uh huh. It worked out very well. That's great. I love it. So, getting to the point though, where some people that come, you know, from math or statistics, engineering, some of these technology upbringings, and they they end up in in management positions. How does someone decide that? 
oh, we need a design thinking workshop or we need that, that, that all of a sudden this matters that we should spend the time to go and do something like this before we start deploying machine learning or data science at our problem. How is this something where you're like, well, hold hold the phone here. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it my way. And you kind of have your, your thing, or was this something where they knew that they were going to go through this process and they, they wanted that, like, what's that, how's that experience like? And, and what, what, what changed, what had to change to allow that to happen? Cause this doesn't happen in a lot of places in my experience. You've got to allow them to experience the power of empowerment. You have to help them. The envisioning workshop is all designed to let people realize that there are valuable assets, people all across the organization who bring very different perspectives to a problem. That when you combine those perspectives, you, you have an illuminating thing. Now let's be real honest. Many large organizations don't do this well at all. Horribly. And the reason why is not because they're not smart. It's because in many cases, senior executives aren't willing to let go. Design thinking, you think about the empowerment, isn't empowering the senior executives. In many cases, empowering those frontline employees. Think about you know, the COVID situation. Who knows best about the conditions around COVID better than a nurse or a doctor, right? It isn't the chief hospital administrator. He doesn't know anything. I mean, it's the people at the front line who really know what's going on. So if you have a culture where the senior executives have to be the smartest people in the room, design is doomed. This last mile, you know, we talk about you know, all the amazing things we can do with the technology, and it always comes back to this last mile, right? Like there's going to be some human touch point at the end of this that's ultimately going to determine what's going to happen, how much credit or someone is going to hand a wad of cash or tokens, right, to that gambler. That is the last mile. How much is that wad of cash? Well, she's the last person or whoever the woman Mary with behind bars or whatever it was. How do we help Mary know how much to give out? What is she empowered to do? Does she have any personal judgment over that? Like, you know, if you don't understand that last mile there, you know, or if you bury it in a, you know, like some application, she's like, I deal with the cash and I talk to the customers. Like, I'm not going to go open up a 500 page PDF to look up someone's name to see what they're you know, <laughs> how much cash they're allowed to like take out a credit line or whatever it is. I, I'm guessing you speak for me, you know, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it's really important to talk about this last mile stuff at the beginning of the project and uncover how might we questions to, to get at what you, what you mentioned. Well, there's a couple of points there here, Brian. Number one is that last mile is where you really are turning your analytic outputs into business outcomes. And so we didn't expect Mary to go and pull up a record that showed everything this person had. We created a score, a series of scores that said, how important is this person to us? How much are we willing to give them? And within the guidelines, it isn't like there was an AI robot saying, you'll get $2,000. She had the ability to make a judgment. Now, what we also did is when she made a judgment as far as how much to give somebody, we recorded it because we wanted to learn if that was a good decision or not. So we want to use AI machine learning to give recommendations and scores and guidance to the frontline employees and technicians and you know, people that are giving out cash, right? The cashiers. But we also want to empower the humans to override that. Let me give you a really cool story. So we know that most automobile loans today are driven by AI models. And they've got a model that works. And if somebody walks in and their past payment and credit history doesn't look worthy, they're out the door, right? They're automatically rejected. Well, they did this once, and one of the women who was at the bank who was giving out the loan, she said, well, tell me, why do you want the money? 
And the person said, well, you know, I've had a, a rough life. I've, you know, I've been in and out of prison and I've had some problems and I've decided I'm going to become an Uber driver and I need to buy a car. Now think about it. Now all of a sudden you right, realize that this person would have been denied a car loan, but this person's going to get a car loan in order to make money. They're going to use it. And, you know, she asked a few more questions, understand what his plans were, his process, kind of did a, a sanity check in the business model and gave him the loan. Now, what she wants to do is she wants to immediately tag that and said, was that a good loan? Did the person pay it back or did the person not pay him back? Well, in this case, the person bought the car, became an Uber driver, made lots of money, bought another car, right? Pretty soon had a series of cars of people he was working with who were doing this. So you need to empower the human at this last mile to override what the model might say, but you want to measure how effective it was. Because if you don't do that, what happens is these AI models suffer from what's called confirmation bias. They keep making the same decisions over and over again, and they don't look at the outliers that if the, the false positives and the false negatives get to, could dramatically not only improve the quality of the AI model's decision, but also could improve dramatically the quality of an organization's total addressable market. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this kind of squishy human part of it and allowing some of this human touch point, is this an, is this an uncomfortable thing that an organization needs to get past, whether it's the, the data scientists themselves who are thinking about often about model accuracy as being the ultimate determinant of their worth in the organization or the management to understand, wait a second, we're really going to let, you know, Mary or John decide how much money to be handing out like at the front gate. Is that a tough thing to swallow? Or do you think by the time they've gone through a design-driven method for building a solution like this, it's not a difficult oh, thing to get it's to. It's very difficult. It's it's very difficult because we have senior executives who went to school, learned certain management techniques, have been in business. I always get very frustrated when I see an organization. Organizational charts are the great destroyer of creativity, right? Because you put people in boxes and then you for almost forbid the people in marketing to talk to the people in sales to talk to people. I mean, you put them in boxes, right? And you they're like silos. We talk about data silos, but we create these human silos where people can't go out. And so most organizations operate around boxes, organizational charts. And whenever they bring in, by the way, a senior expensive management consulting firm to do some analysis, the management consulting firm always comes back with a new set of boxes. Here's the box you need to be in. You know, screw boxes. We want to create swirls. We want to create empowered teams. In fact, the powerful teams are the ones who can embrace design thinking to create what I call organizational improvisation. That is, you have the ability to mix and match people across the organization based on their skill sets for the problem at hand, dissipate them when the problem is gone, and reconstitute them around a different problem. It's like watching a great soccer team play. It isn't like the coach is standing above there and yelling, you know, Bill, you go there, and Max, you go there, and Alec, you kick the ball over here. No, these the players have been trained and conditioned. They make their own decisions on the field. They interact with each other. It's, a, it's like ballet watching a good soccer team because they've all been empowered to make decisions. But yet the minute we get into a business world, it's like the senior guy at the top knows all the answers and everybody else is a friggin' bunch of robots and just nod your head. That way of running an organization is friggin' dead. It is dead, and there are up-and-coming organizations that are going to knock those people on their butts because they're going to empower all the creativity. They're going to unleash the greatness in each of their employees by employing not only design thinking, but integrating design thinking with data science to really help to identify, codify, and operationalize all those sources of value. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think that the idea of owning the problem and not 
I'm going to call it solution in quotes, but which what often is the output, right? Not not the outcome. But if you can allow the team to own the problem, it really changes that dynamic now because it opens up other possibilities for doing things and not you know every solution that we come out with needs to be hit with this hammer. The machine learning hammer is my favorite one. You know, no matter what it is, let's hit it with that. You know, and so you know part of what I do in in my seminar is is to really by understanding the the framing the problem correctly, we might find out we don't need machine learning for it. And if we can let go that yes, that is your core technical skill, but maybe you find out you know what you don't need me on this project. You need a a more basic analytical you know technique here. We don't need to build out a giant infrastructure to do this. We can get something done in three weeks using a, a more elementary technique here, and that's going to solve the problem now that we know what it is. How does a team, though, get, you know, you talked about the, and I understand the management and some of these larger changes that, that aren't, aren't going to change on a dime, but if someone was feeling like, I get this, I've been through the pain, this makes sense to me, what's the zero to one step? Like, we're not doing any of this now. What's the first step to getting into this world? Is it to deploy design on a small project or like, how would you recommend an organization take a first step? into doing things a different way like this? Where does it begin? Where I've seen this be successful is you said here, Brian, you pick a use case, but you pick a use case that has meaningful business value. And in fact, what we do is we go through in our envisioning process, we go through the prioritization process, we identify use cases, and we go through a process of prioritizing based on value and feasibility over a nine-month period, right? We're not going to cure world hunger. That's a project that's doomed from the start. So we find a use case we can go after, we find a friendly on the business side who wants to engage with us, who sees either an op- a growth opportunity of how using data science can help them change things, or somebody who's in trouble mode who knows, I got to change. So we find a friendly, we do a proof of value, and a proof of value can be you know, four to six months, pretty straightforward. And we did one of these when I was at Hitachi Vantara, our CIO, she realized that their data lake was basically a data swamp, wasn't getting any value. So she wanted to try something different. She partnered with our chief marketing officer. They picked a use case. We applied this process. The proof of value generated a $28 million in additional revenue. $28 million in the proof of value. Guess Drain the swamp. Guess <laughs> who was our biggest supporter going forward? The CIO now understood. She goes, oh my gosh, I see. This is like, this is like printing money. So use case by use case. Here she is. The, the data lake no longer has five, 25 data sources. It has the three most important. And then we add one more. It's She saw the light and became our strongest proponent. It delivered value. So what happens, and I know this is a hard concept to, to grok, but you have to basically build it brick by brick. And you have to, as a design team, as a data science team, you have to prove yourself every step. Because the minute you make a misstep, you go back to zero. And so you may have gotten to the 20, 30, 40 yard line, but you screw up, you're back at the goal line again. Off you go again. How do you handle that though? Because I, I see a lot of the point of design is to move as quickly and to accelerate learning as fast as possible, working in low fidelity, getting ideas going visually fast. And this includes things like journey mapping and, and not just the final, you can, as you said, you can apply this to things where there's not a heavy user interface element. A lot of this is about the problem the way we approach problem solving. But to me, that failure part is very much a a part of this. Not everything is going to have a eureka moment. There's not always going to be a success and not everything is quantifiable. So how do you handle that? Like, I don't don't think every time we do this, it's necessarily going to yield a 
you know, a substantially different type of outcome. I think overall on the trend, it's a better way of designing solutions. It's human centered in every way. And you'll get the business value if you get the people part right. But tell me about that. Maybe I misunderstood you, but it sounded like you're saying like if you're not if you don't show a success every time, you don't get another swing at it. That that sounds like a a really risky, especially if a team's trying to do this and maybe they don't have internal knowledge on how to do it. You know, it sounds really risky. Yeah, it is. But here's what you do. You cheat. You cheat by, by you identify the problems ahead of time through this envisioning process that you know you can be successful at. When we do an envisioning workshop, the data science team is right there with us. It's led by a design thinker. We have data engineers here. We have business subject matter experts. And so we cheat by making sure that we've invested enough time up front to minimize the chances of failure. Because what you don't want to have happen, what can easily happen, you do one of these things and you have success. Everybody in the organization sees it, right? Now everybody wants it. The worst thing you can do is to open the floodgates and let everybody do it. Because then you'll have <laughs> everybody fail. So what you have to do, you said a very important word here, Brian, learning. Right? It's a learning process. And so how does an organization exploit the economies of learning? Because in knowledge-based industries, the economies of learning are more powerful than economies of scale. So you have to put in a governance process, a governance process with teeth that says, we're going to review the use cases. We're going to go use case by use case. And oh, by the way, if you do this right, like my latest book says, you can exploit the economics of data and analytics to drive material impact in the organization. It's around the economies of learning. And it isn't necessarily human-centered as much as it's human-empowered to help you figure out how you learn more quickly. So you will have success. I, every time we've done one of these things, and I've been doing this for like 20-some years, every time we do this, we have a success. The challenge isn't the first one. The challenge is the second and third one. So you don't basically open the floodgates. And I, I'm serious about this governance process. You need to have a very rigid governance process that both blesses the use cases you go after, but ensures that the organization is leveraging the learning from the data and analytics use case by use case. Mm -hmm. Does that require a lot of either specialized roles or a lot of additional, not necessarily technology that needs to be enabled, but a responsibility that someone has to own in the business? It's like this cost of doing design, you know, that, that has to be built in along this uh, to keep the thing on the right track. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I, th I think the reason why most companies are really poor at monetizing their data is because nobody in the organization owns it. It's spread across chief data officer, chief information officer, chief analytics officer. You have all these people who own pieces of it. Unless you have one throat to choke, who is that point of governance by collaborating with other executives to make sure you have this approach, this thing can go, well, one thing, it probably never gets off the ground. But if you don't have that, I call it the chief data monetization officer role, who is basically responsible for trying to drive the governance and the reapplication of data and Alex across the organization, then this thing can, yeah, you'll have your first success, but it's not the first one that matters. It's the third and the fifth and the seventh. It's all these other ones that come on after that where you get really big impact. Who are the right types of people to, to do this kind of work in an organization, especially if they don't have designers who are trained in doing this type of facilitation or work? Is there a personality type or something, a trend you've seen? I tend to feel like design thinkers can come out of almost anywhere. You know, even certain types of very, very technical people can be really good at it. A lot of it is around the types of questions they ask. I find it's people who have built enough bad stuff 
and they're tired of doing it that way. <laughs> and they're just like, I'm at the point in my career where I want to work on good stuff. You know, my job prospects are good. I'm tired of building stuff I don't like, you know, that doesn't go anywhere. And those people sometimes could become really good at this. But can you tell, tell me about your experience? Like if I was to tap, you know, four people and run some small squads and try to bring some of this into my organization, you know, who would I look for as a, as a leader in the data space? That the best design thinkers and the best data scientists share one common trait. They're humble. They're, they have the ability to ask questions, to learn. They don't walk in with an answer. They walk in trying to seek an answer. And that's a very different process. And here's the beauty of this design thinking kind of approach. Anybody can do it. Anybody. But you have to be humble. If you already know the answer, then you're never going to be a good designer. Never. Once you have put together this team of people who are intrinsically humble and willing to ask questions and learn from each other, it creates this synergy around creativity. And I would argue that we're all born naturally with creativity. As little kids, you know, we took things apart and we put them together. And, you know, I uh, took things apart and put them back together. And there's always extra parts laying over, which <laughs> always drove my dad nuts. Like, oh, there goes, there goes that radio. That one's no good anymore. But what happens is, and it starts in school through things like standardized testing and such, where we, we work really hard in, in, in schools, starting in grade school and middle school, et cetera, to wipe creativity out. Oh, that kid is he's a troublemaker. He's an outlier. He can't, he can't do, he can't sit there with, and, be, you know, and, and be still, right? So, and then we get standardized testing in college and everything else and standardized curriculums. And so we, we wipe creativity out. The best design thinkers and the best data scientists are, by their very nature, very creative. They have a strong curiosity about what variables and metrics might be important metrics, right? They, they leverage that curiosity to explore. And exploring is about failing, right? You don't learn if you're not failing. So you have to embrace the data science. The data science development methodology is full of failures. You are failing all the time. You're constantly trying different combinations of variables and metrics and different algorithms and different transformation and enrichments. You're trying all these things just to see if you can get a little bit better. It's yeah, built yeah. on failure. I, I would agree that that ability to ask questions and, and putting apart some of our assumptions about being the smartest one in the room or I know the domain the best or, or whatever, I, I, I would agree those are critical skills. Do you find that the people that end up being really good at this does this take away from or complement the data science work they do? Do they tend to then kind of migrate out of the, the hands-on data science work if they do come from that area? Or is this just a different way for them to even do their technical work and everything? It just becomes part of the way they do that technical work as well. Is it a different, do they kind of evolve into a different role within the organization? How do you see that? Because I, I could see some just devil's advocate, I could see some people saying, well, I really need those kinds of people on that really hard modeling stuff that, you know, we pay them really well to do. And there's not, we don't have a lot of that resource. So I don't want to have them, you know, doing this other stuff, you know, this design stuff, play the other side of that argument for me. So imagine you're a data scientist and you've got an infinite number of ways to solve a problem. Truly infinite. There's almost an infinite number of data combinations of data enrichment techniques and transformations and algorithms, it's almost impossible job. How do you take the impossible job and make it manageable? Well, you put guardrails around it. What we do in this envisioning process using these design techniques is to really understand what are the variables and metrics you're trying to optimize against? 
What are the decisions we're trying to make? What metrics and variables might help us be better predictors of those decisions? And so we automatically start putting some guardrails in place that helps the data scientists. They're still going to bounce around between those guardrails, but they're not off in ether land. They, they now have a concrete idea of what they need to do. It's really this key about how do we transition data science, modern data science, data science 2.0, from outputs to outcomes. How do we transition that discipline, that practice, from focusing on analytic outputs using ML and AI techniques to delivering business and operational outcomes that have meaningful financial value attached to them? I think it's all about the maturation of data science as a discipline. We're not focused on the activities, we're focused on the outcomes. And so I think what you're seeing is that data scientists, they love this. Because now they know that their work has meaning. They know who their customers, they can, if you do the design part right, they can even envision the customer. They can walk in their shoes. They can go to the store and see what the customer is going through and experience it firsthand. So my experience with a data scientist, and by the way, this is not all data. I've had a couple of data scientists who couldn't get this. I, I had to let them go, right? I needed them to be able to think and act and talk to the customers. They needed to be a part of this process in order to be an effective data scientist. Amen. I'm 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 totally with you there. Jared Spool in the design where we, we talks a lot about exposure hours, right? Like how much exposure are the people that are making the decisions? And if the data science is doing the model and the model's part of the solution, then they're effectively one of the designers of the solution. We got to get more exposure time to all of the, the people, not just the researchers and designers or whoever. It's the team that's responsible to make the decisions. It's really important to have that exposure. You develop the empathy. You start to foresee solutions instead of just being reactive. You can start to be proactive and say, wait a second, you know, why aren't we doing this here? We could so easily do X, Y, and Z over here to help this. And maybe no one's asking about it because they didn't know it was possible. But I know it's possible because I've been trained in this. And this is something, this is a very easy thing that we could get a win over here. You know, I'm with you on all of that. Where did someone like you, you have a computer science background, a math background, as I, I understand how the heck did you get into this? Like, where where did you get exposed to this as someone at your level? So I've I've always been fascinated with data and analytics because of what I could do with it. And it started probably at an early age when I was in middle school. We, we played this, this game board called Stratomatic Baseball, which was a, a kind of precursor to baseball sabermetrics. And I quickly realized, because I knew more about math and stats, that I knew what players were more valuable than other players. And I had an unfair advantage in trades and, and, and amassing a team that was pretty, you know, murderer's row, it had a new, whole new definition. So I've always had this fascination and I knew that if you could leverage data and analytics, you could drive outcomes. The real place of indoctrination for me, though, is when I was working with Procter & Gamble in the 1980s. Yeah, I am that old. And Procter & Gamble was moving towards a data-based decision-making culture. And we built in 87 and 88, one of the very first, and maybe it was the first data warehouse and BI environment with Procter & Gamble's data combined with Walmart's point of sale data. And the kind of insights we were able to gain on marketing programs and pricing and promotions and all these other things were illuminating. We were printing money. It was, it was staggering. And I, I remember walking out of there and we'd all been trained in Six Sigma as a methodology. And I remember walking out of there thinking, there's a better way to do this. The Procter & Gamble has, they sort of got me, my appetite whetted on this. And so all through my life here, I've been on this goal, Brian, to 
really try to understand what is the value of data and how do I help organizations leverage data to make better decisions? And so it just came on and on and a lot of force got moments in my life when I went to become vice president of advertising analytics at Yahoo. That was one of those four scump moments where everything I had learned about BI and data warehousing, I had to unlearn. Because the way that we did analytics at Yahoo was very different than how we were doing analytics to other places I had been. So I'd always sort of been on this journey. And not to bore you, but it was a research project. You know, I, I teach at the University of San Francisco. And it was a research project we did. Um, as I said, I was always been fascinated with trying to understand the value of data. And so when I was at USF, I'm the executive fellow there. I was able to do a research project. I had lots of really bright, really motivated research assistants who were free, and I turned them loose on this problem. And the epiphany moment in that, and when I went into this conversation, I was thinking about how do I show data on the books? If data is truly an asset, you've got to find a way to put it onto the, a company's balance sheet. And so we're doing this project, and I asked my team to go out. I said, find me an asset that sits on the balance sheet that looks like data. And so off they go, they do their work and do their brainstorming. And one of the research assistants, she comes back to me and says, Professor Schmarzo, she says, I gotta be honest, I can't find anything. She says, data isn't like anything we have on the balance sheet. She said, think about it. It never wears out and never depletes. The same data set can be used across an unlimited number, an infinite number of use cases at zero marginal cost. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this entirely wrong. That zero marginal cost comment reflected back to a marginal propensity to consume or the economic multiplier effect. And I realized that my approach all along had been wrong and how I viewed data as a standalone asset. But when I took a look at it from an economic perspective, from this economic multiplier effect, I realized the value of data isn't in having it. The value in data is how you use it to generate more value. And that's just launched everything about I've been doing on on economics, I'm now working on a concept around nanoeconomics. I, like I said, I mentioned in my book, the, you know, the book's called The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation, probably the most boring title one could ever think of. But it speaks to the heart of the opportunity is that this is a, this whole conversation is around economics. And I would argue in the same way that design thinking is learning how to speak the language of the customer, economics is about learning how to speak the language of the business. And when you bring those concepts together around data science, that's a blend that is truly a game changer. Who would get the most out of your, your new text? I think anybody, students, professionals, retirees, anybody who's trying to understand how do I advance my career by understanding more about how one exploits the value of data and analytics would benefit from this. I, I did a keynote recently at a large industrial company about two weeks ago. And after the keynote, one of the vice presidents said, your book is going to be mandatory reading for all of our leaders because our leaders need to transform how they think about data and analytics. And it's not just a technology conversation. It's how do we leverage design and human empowerment in order to create a culture and a company of continuous learning and adapting. So I, I think anybody can benefit from it, but it's not a fun read. It's, it's a horrible read. It's a boring read because... <laughs> It was written as a textbook. It's deep. It's, it makes you do homework assignments at the end of each chapter. But if you're really serious about understanding why data and analytics is such a unique asset and how you personally and professionally can advance your career with it, I've got a lot of very positive feedback on the book as far as you know, changing people, how they think about their careers, whether they're a nurse, whether they're a data scientist, whether they're a teacher, 
whether they're a technician, anybody whose career can benefit from data and analytics and making better decisions, I think will enjoy them. Well, I don't say enjoy is the wrong term, but I think they'll get value out of the book. Yeah, that's great. That's great. This has been a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you sharing all these insights. Just in kind of in closing, is there one particular message that you would send out to the, you know, the leadership community in the data science and analytics and, and product space here about all the things that you've learned putting together the, the economic side of data, your use of design as a strategic way of problem solving within businesses to create better solutions? Like, is there, is there one message you'd like to kind of leave them with? Yeah, here's the message I'd leave them with. I believe in knowledge-based industries, the economies of learning are more powerful than economies of scale. That organizations need to work hard to create both a technology and a cultural environment of continuous learning and adapting. In my book, chapter nine, which I think is the most powerful chapter in my book, has nothing to do with technology or economics and has everything to do with team empowerment. If organizations are gonna truly create a culture of continuous learning and adapting to learn faster than the competition and to adapt more quickly, then you have to empower your frontline people. You have to empower the frontline people because that's the point where machine learning and human collaboration is going to drive new sources of customer product and operational value. Love it. Love it. Love it. This is so good. Where can people follow uh, follow you or, or get more insights? You have a mailing list or something like that. What's the best place to, to follow? Uh, LinkedIn. I try to post about one blog a week. My goal is to continue to write new chapters for the book. I mentioned this concept around nanoeconomics, I think is a very much a game changer. It's a new concept. And I've, I'll, I'll create the equivalent of a chapter that would go in the book. So it actually won't. I'm also working a lot, of, a lot right now on ethical AI and how do organizations create a culture that enables you to overcome the confirmation bias that drives AI to do unethical things. So LinkedIn is a place to find me. Come hang out on LinkedIn. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely uh, link that up. The, the book is The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation, if you're you're interested. Bill Schmarzo, this is such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian, for having me. It's a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.